I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so delighted to be sitting across from Steph Cha, who I met uh, a couple of years ago at the LA Times Festival of Books. And she is the author of the Juniper Song Crime Trilogy, and she's an editor and critic whose work has appeared in the LA Times, USA Today, and the LA Review of Books. She lives in LA with her husband and two basset hounds, and her latest book is Your House Will Pay. Welcome, Steph. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so happy! I'm so happy to get you here. Your new novel is remarkable. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I like to hear that. And um, I was hoping you could tell the audience how the idea came to you, because I know that this is a crime novel that's based on a true crime. Yeah. Um, I based it on uh, the murder of Latasha Harland, um, which was a 1991 murder of a 15-year-old black girl by a Korean shopkeeper. Uh, in South Central Los Angeles. Um, and when I, I, I was a kid in the early mm -hmm. 90s when this happened. So Same. I didn't have any awareness of what was going on. You know, I was also in the suburbs and I only came to know about the, this history of Los Angeles, um, as an adult, really. Right. And when I heard about this particular killing, I had a really strong reaction to it. Um, both of, anger and grief, but also of shame and guilt um, sure. by association. Because even though I didn't know the killer, she was Korean. And there's something about that that um, I felt personally. Mm -hmm. um, and looking more, looking farther into that, that murder, um, you know, so the Sunjadu, the killer, actually ended up serving no jail time. And it was this... right. It was this massive um, fuck-up of the justice system <laughs> where um, she was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, but but the judge kind of overruled the jury and didn't 
didn't give the recommended sentence. Um, and so learning about that story and also learning that the killer was still in the county, LA County. And specifically, I think at the time I saw that she was living in the San Fernando Valley where I grew up. Um, mm. I just felt this, um, sense that we are from the same place and we probably right. know some of the same people and, um, we're part of this community that, um, that produced this person. And, um, I, I wanted to explore that, um, mm-hmm. that feeling of, um, guilt by association. Um, and I also wanted to look at the, um, the people who were left behind by this crime on the other side, the victim's family. Um, and so I kind of started spinning this story that was about the family members of um, the principal characters of the 1991 crime. And um, the book kind of went from there. Yeah. I mean, so in the book, um, the the girl who's murdered is, is named Ava Matthews. And you can really feel that one act of violence kind of ricocheting through the lives of so many different people who you you might not consider at first even. Yeah. I mean, and I wanted to look at that too, because, you know, I come from a background of writing PI novels and, um, and those books are the structure of a traditional mystery is you kind of look at a crime and you follow the crime through, um, through one linear story but you don't get to really linger with the people who are directly affected in the same way. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to write a story where you you really lived in that and you thought about the people who would be side characters in, in a more straightforward um, mystery novel. Um, and because I find them interesting and I'm and right. And, you know, I think maybe after um, spending so much time writing writing mysteries, I started thinking about, you know, the impact of violence on, in a really like on the ground way. Mm -hmm. Um, And the book kind of came out of that too. And I I do, I love that you switch back and forth both in time from the nineties to to present day. And then also between these two families. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't want to write a novel that was a 90s novel. I wanted to write a contemporary novel, but mm-hmm. I thought it was important to show at least a little bit of the background of how these people became who they are. Um, and and the 90s stories, I mean, those are all from Sean's point of view, the uh, younger brother of the victim. And, you know, I wanted to kind of look at those th- just a few select moments from that time period and look at how it tied directly to present-day America, present-day Los Angeles, but also present-day America, where a lot of the same, a lot of the same concerns are still very much alive, um, and and I think having those two timelines really allowed me to um, make that direct connection. Yeah, I mean, I too was a child um, during the early '90s, and. I remember knowing about Rodney King, but I still, I still think I was sheltered from it in some ways. Like I never, I don't, I certainly didn't watch the footage of his beating. Um, and, and it seems like today it's worse that, that we haven't learned anything as a country or a society or as a government. Yeah, I, I you know what was what was shocking to me about you know cuz now 
Because I, I, I was the same. Like, I knew about the Rodney King beating. I knew about the trial. Um, I knew about the uprising, but only in this kind of vague background way. And so I only really started doing deep dive research once I started this project. And reading the specifics of the Rodney King case, you know, it was both really illuminating and I see why it became this major flashpoint in 1991 and 1992. But I was, but I was also reading about this story at the same time that in the news, you, there was Michael Brown. Right. Um, there was Freddie Gray, uh, Stefan Clark, you know, all these, all these, um, all these black children and men um, being killed. Um, unarmed. Unarmed. And, and by police. And I, I was thinking, like, comparing those cases to the Rodney King case, if Rodney King were beaten in the same way today, I don't think it would break the news because mm. he was um, he was fleeing arrest. Right. Um, you know, it, it, the beating happened at the end of a long car chase. Right. And he so he was running from the cops and then he resisted arrest. And then he didn't die. Right. He's, he survived. Right. The, you know, he survived this, this encounter terrible, with the terrible cops. Terrible beating. Yeah. And how often do you hear about the the people who resisted arrest and survived the a violent encounter with the cops? I mean, I'm just thinking of yeah. all of the names of dead people I dead know. Dead people. Um, but I can't think of any off the top of my head no. who survived their encounters. So I think Rodney King, that only blew up because there was video, and at the time video was scarce. Right. But today, this this incident that lit the entire city of Los Angeles on fire, um, I don't think it would even really register, uh, certainly not on a national scale. I hadn't considered that, that like, yeah, that... that the list of names that are in the book that of uh, Claudia Rankine's yeah, poetry. Yeah, the ever-growing. Ever-growing list. list yeah. yeah, that doesn't contain people who've just been terribly beaten. No. And, uh, I mean, I feel like the videos that have gone viral yes. of inappropriate police behavior usually involve teenagers, like young people. Yes. Um, you know, and those, those will get some attention. But... I don't think those names really stay in the news cycle, um, and they have this, they have this um, absolute like, oh, these are just kids yes. thing. Whereas Rodney King was a grown man, mm -hmm. um, and he was an ex felon, and he was resisting arrest. So it's just, it's just a different kind of story, um, you know. And I, I don't. It's hard to know how prevalent that kind of police violence was at the time. I think the. I think the safe assumption is that it was happening a lot yeah. and it's just and there was people no just weren't seeing it. Yeah. Um but you know nowadays you just see all these incidents. Right. Um and it's and it's both it's both alarming and desensitizing. Yes. Cuz you just they pop up in your social media timeline. Yeah, all the I mean without warning. often yeah. often. And and I, I I think it's so shocking that the idea that we have to have these perfect victims, mm -hmm. quote unquote, um, and that they have to be presented a certain way and to really um, get the right media coverage for them, they have to have been this, this, and this and not not running from the cops or mm -hmm. not. Um, 
And I don't think that hasn't changed at all. No. And this is one of the things that I wanted to explore in the book, the idea of the blameless victim. Because, um, you know, when I started writing it, um, I think it was shortly after Michael Brown's murder. um, And the New York Times ran this really tone deaf piece that talked about how he was no angel. And it kind of dug up dirt on this on this dead kid. I mean, and I remember the photo choices were. Yeah. And it, it's just like gross. And, yeah. you know, it shouldn't matter what non capital offenses like a dead teenager right. might have committed that may or may not have even had anything to do with, with, a, with the arrest or the incident right. leading up to the death. Um, and yet they keep getting trotted out because I feel like I often see the um, family member on in a press conference talking about how this kid was such a good kid. Right. He was going to go to college. Um, you know, he was such a good, good son. Um, and like I totally, totally, totally understand why a victim's yes. parents would go on the news and and – and talk about their child in that way, I'm also aware that that gets a lot of coverage mm-hmm. and that shapes the narrative of this victim being more worthy of mourning and more and more deserving of justice than some other vic- some other hypothetical victim who may not have like been some high achieving person, you know, but who cares? And you know, that's one of, and that's like a debate that I kind of set up in the book too. You know? Yes, you did. You, so there's, you have a writer, this, this man who's covered uh, the death of Ava as a true crime uh, narrative. And one of the things that he does is constantly mention her classical music training. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, you see, you mostly see that character, um, the, the white male journalist through Sean's eyes. Yes. And Sean doesn't like him. Like, no. and that's like, and Sean is pretty clear about that. Um, and I don't see that character as villainous in the same way that, like, Sean does. Um, but I see what his role is in this whole, sure. in this whole production. Um, and, you know, I, Sean also has differing viewpoints with his, his aunt, who raised both him and his sister. And, um, you know, his aunt Sheila is somebody who I actually based on a real person. She's the only person in the book, actually, who is based, Mm. who has personality based on um, a real person. Because um, Latasha Harlan's aunt, Denise Harlan's, um, she did a lot to keep Latasha's memory alive. Right. Um, And she was the one who was constantly calling the media. She was the one who was making sure that on the anniversaries of her death, there was some kind of remembrance. Right. I think a lot of the reason why her memory, why Latasha's memory is alive is due to the hard work of this aunt who became an activist after her niece's death and who became active in, um, in talking about like the deaths of black children and in, uh, in, in children's issues. And, and, um, she passed away, um, almost a year ago. Um, Mm. but she's somebody who, um, I admired a lot and, she and Sean don't see eye to eye on everything. Right. And she's somebody who sees the value in in pushing that story. Right. Um, because there is value. There is literal She's working within the system yeah. to you know, and she's kind of she's kinda of, she and this journalist have a longstanding friendship, um, a mutually beneficial relationship that has some affection in it. Um 
And she's just kind of bought in, whereas Sean just wants privacy and yes. he wants to have his he wants to have his sister remembered as the person she was, not as this sort of mythologized black victim. And I sympathize with both sides of, of that. Of course. And and I think you it's you are so good at being generous to both sides in that in the story I feel you know, I feel for Sean and his aunt. And then I also feel for Grace, who is, um, the daughter of the, the woman who has, um, shot Ava and kind of reinvented herself yeah. in her life. And I love Grace gets to be sheltered. Mm-hmm. And she gets to keep her head down a little bit. Yeah, until and, she doesn't. Until she doesn't. And that's that's one of the things that I really wanted to d- dive into is um, this idea of political involvement or um, or the personalized political being a choice. Yes. Um, because for a lot of people it isn't. Um, yes. Or, again, it is until it isn't. And, um, you know, Grace is a 27-year-old Korean-American girl um, she's second generation. She is similar to, um, you know, versions of, like versions of myself when I was younger, and friends of mine, and people I went to church with, right? And people I just see in uh, K Town or Korean or Korean Valley. Um, you know, she's she's somebody who hasn't really like lived anywhere farther from where she grew up than like Irvine, right? Um, and she works. She still lives at home as many as many young kids of immigrants do right when they're when they're unmarried and um you know just just to save money so she lives she lives at home and because it's convenient too because she also works in her family's store right um and so she, her world is very small and yes. contained and she's also busy she works as a pharmacist so she's on her feet a lot and she she's just occupied and she kind of pays vague attention to what's going on in the outside world but it doesn't really touch her in a visceral way at all um, until, like, until present-day events kind of force this past history on her. And she and she learns for the first time that her mother was guilty of this act. Um, and, you know, she – Grace is a character that I have a lot of sympathy for. She's also very frustrating, yep. um, you know, in the way that somebody who um, – is trying to like get educated very quickly on something that everybody else yes. has already known can yes. be frustrating. Um, but she is somebody who I think is trying to engage in an honest and responsible way, at least um, with what her mother has done and what that means for, um, for her family and also for the larger world. Um, you know, and she's kind of frantic about it and stupid about it, but um, yeah, I do have some sympathy for her. You know, it kind of um, explodes her life and makes her reevaluate her relationship with her mother, which had always been very good and very loving. Yeah. And then there's also a more of an explanation for why her sister is, is so opposite her in, in so many ways. Yeah. Her sister, Miriam, um, who's the older sister, she was, um, first of all, she was alive at the time of the shooting, whereas um, Grace was not. Right. Um, but she also, you know, she's somebody who like who who left LA for college 
and who kind of came back and, like, became a writer. You know, I mean, the two sisters, like, I'm somewhere in between them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and they're, right. both, and they're both kind of annoying. So they're both, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they're both annoying and sympathetic in their own ways. Yes. Um, which is probably how I feel about myself. Um, and, and, yeah, I think, like, Miriam is the version that started paying attention. Um, and she also learned of her family history just by – just by absorbing, just by absorbing like the the history of Los Angeles, you know, right. she came across this. So she has already known about the family history for a few years, and it's caused a rift. So she hasn't spoken to her mother in two years, and Grace is trying to figure out why in the beginning of the book, um, and then she and then she learns. <laughs> um, but you know, I wanted to set up this contrast so that like Grace was kind of the protected innocent. Um, and Miriam was able to, was somebody who'd like kind of been through this already. And, and Miriam is like, yeah, an extreme version of the the woke uh, lady. <laughs> yeah, and and she's and you know again that's like through her sister's point of view, and her sister finds all right. of this like very annoying. Right. Um, but yeah, she's she's you know, and she's somebody that like I think like I would be friends with. Um, but like she, you know, she certainly has the. Um, qualities of somebody who is like you know kind of social media she's probably on twitter a lot complaining about stuff which when when uh, your version of the proud boys what did you call them the, the western, western boys. boys i should have called them the proud boys who give a shit <laughs> <laughs> when they want, walk into the bar i didn't want to like get, i didn't want to like do a bunch of research into the proud boys yeah so I fuck just them. T- t- twisted them a tiny bit um yeah, but Miriam would be the person to be like, I can't fucking believe these guys are mm-hmm. here and I'm going to do something about it, which yeah. is like heroic and also very privileged. Yeah, no, totally. And I think – and, you know, I think she's she's both aware of that and like can't really do much about it, no. you know. And I think she's in the position that a lot of us are in, which is like if you're a person with privilege and you care a lot about these issues, you're going to look ridiculous some of the time yeah. if, you, if you put yourself out there. And I think like – you just have to accept and be okay with the fact that you're like you're a little bit ridiculous. And that's yeah. fine. That's fine. You know, like, so much better than the alternative. Exactly. I think that's I think that's correct. Like, I think you can kind of not put yourself out there, or you can put yourself out there. And when you're out there, like, you know, like marching with your like with your impervious body, um, that's a statement. It's also yeah. It's also just like a little bit like easy to make fun of. That's fine. (laughs) That's okay. Um, You you know, you you deal with so many stereotypes in this book. And as a nice Jewish girl who is mouthy a lot on Twitter, (laughs) I saw a lot in myself um, in Miriam who is a nice Asian girl. Yeah. No, totally. You know, and and I I, I, I like Miriam. but you know, you, it's it's hard to get away from that. It's hard to get away from that, and of course, the character of Ava does not have that chance to be even stereotyped in in such a way. No, like she's you know, Ava is somebody who I tried to make as alive as possible in the like instances that you see her. Yeah. But, like ultimately, she doesn't have a chance to like have her voice heard, even in even in this book. You know, you only see her. Um, alive a couple times through the eyes of her younger brother. Um, and, you know, that's just one of the constraints. And I, I, but like, yeah, you can't hear from the dead person. That's, 
you know, unless, unless you're writing the book where you do hear from the dead person. Right, that's just right, not right. my book. Right. Um, but yeah, like, and Miriam, you hear through the, you see through, um, through Grace's point of view. Um, but you get more of her, like, opinions than yes. you would of somebody who just isn't there to, like, even express them. And, and I, lo- and Miriam has gone a little farther, even just in understanding that, there are no easy answers here. There's nothing that she can personally do. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that she and her sister discuss is, um, you know, this this idea of um, what, what do you do when someone that you love does something terrible or is or is terrible? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Miriam openly believes that her mother is just a terrible person. Right. Um, and I, as the author, just also kind of think that their mother is a terrible person. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. No, I think she's a terrible person. But I think you can be a terrible person and a good mother. Yes. You know, you can be a terrible good person and a good friend to some people, you know. And I think this is something that um, Miriam knows, like, because mm-hmm. Grace kind of holds her, you know, takes holds her accountable for, like, turning her back on their mother because she's never been anything but a great mother. Right. Um. But, like, what do you do when somebody who literally, like, sacrificed their life to, like, make yours better, what do you do when to other people that person is, you know, a racist and a killer? Yeah. Like, that uh, – I, I, I was really interested in that question because I don't think there is a perfect answer. No. Um, because what Miriam has done is she has completely turned her back on her mother in this, like, way that felt clean to her. But that is really like inhumane, and hmm. um, and Grace's initial instinct is just to kind of, you know, is kind of totally tribal to like protect her mother. And I think there's something that about, you know, if you have to like contort yourself to defend a loved one, you contort yourself and you stay contorted, right? Um, and so there's no there's no like getting out of that clean. No. Um, and I was, and I was very like fascinated with that tension. Like this thing is not your fault and yeah. in some ways doesn't have to do with you, but you still but have to. But it has everything to yeah, do with you. Yeah, but you still have to deal with it. Yeah. And it's like foundational and how you decide to approach it, um, you know, will probably dictate like the person you are for the rest of your life. Yeah. And yeah, so I just found that kind of decision point, um, of interest. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to spoil too much of it. So I feel like we've, I'm going to start shutting my mouth a little bit. Um, I I do love that you, you bring up Camille Cosby uh, in the book as, as kind of a a really good example of that. Yeah. I, cause I remember, um, I remember when the Bill Cosby stuff started coming out and she said something really terrible that, I mean, she basically suggested that, like, a hundred, however many right. women ended up accusing her husband were lying. And on the one hand, yeah, maybe it was purely it was purely conniving and she knows that they're not lying. But on the other, like, they've been married for 50 years. And I think there is something almost, almost admirable yeah. about um, the, that kind of loyalty – you know, and, may, and I don't know the story of the Cosbys. Like, this is like right. they could hate each other, and this could all be purely instrumental. But it could be about money, you know. But like, there is something about this idea that like 
your duty of loyalty to your loved ones is so much higher than your duty of loyalty to the rest of the world. Yes. And at some point, those the balance shifts in the direction of like, yeah, you got to turn your back on your husband of 50 mm-hmm. years. But like, it's a pretty high, it's a pretty high um, threshold, I would say. I'd, I'd almost say like, like if somebody said my husband did something really bad um, and it seemed out of character to me, I would almost have to like see the body. Uh, before I believed it. hundred percent. And I think, I think so many, especially women are having these reckonings quite a bit now. Yeah. And I see it a lot, like, um, stories of women defending men who have clearly done wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of piling on and I totally understand why that happens. And I am sympathetic to that too, but I'm also sympathetic to the knee jerk response of, this is somebody I thought I knew mm-hmm. and that I cared about, that I care about a lot. And my natural inclination is to not abandon them. Yeah. You have to reevaluate your entire life and every belief you've ever had. Yeah. That's, that's quite a lot to ask. You know, and I think, um, I think um, it's, it's stupid when like, I don't know, Lena Dunham comes out and, like, defends a guy who, like, you know, probably raped somebody. Right. Um, but, like, it's so stupid that you wonder what was in it for her. And it just seems like probably what was in it for her was, like, she thought this was – this friend of hers needed defending because he clearly didn't do it. Right. You know? Like – and so I see something human in that impulse mm-hmm. to defend even if it does – if even if it ends up doing a lot of harm. Yes. Which it often does. Yes. Because, you know, calling a bunch of women who have been assaulted liars, that's extremely that's, harmful. It's not great. So. Um, well, I, I love the book. Um, I will allow listeners to, they should read it rather than just <laughs> listen to about listen to us talk about it because it is excellent. Um, what have you been reading lately, Steph? Um, I have, I actually just opened up, uh, Kevin Wilson's new book, Nothing uh, to See Here. Um, we share an editor and he gave me a copy. You know, I actually just read, uh, The Joy Luck Club, uh, for, for the first time. I read it when I was a kid. Oh yeah. But I decided to reread it. Um, How did it hold up? I loved it. Oh good. Yeah. I kind of, um, wondered if I would still, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess, uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't approaching it as like a piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as like an adult Asian American female writer, um, I am both, I both feel indebted to Amy Tan and I'm sure. like impressed with what she did. Um, the book feels pretty, pretty modern. Um, I'm trying to think of what else has, what else has been excellent. Um, how about crime? Crime? Yeah. Um, well, I just did an event with, uh, Angie, Angie Kim. Oh yeah. Um, I loved Miracle Creek. I thought that was so good. Um, I, um, Elizabeth Little has a book coming out in February called Pretty as a Picture. That oh, yeah. is, um, that is excellent. Great. Um. Good to know. Ivy Pakoda has a new one coming out next year, too. I, can't I wait. haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm a big fan of hers. Also yeah. a friend. Um, Attica Lock, uh, oh, Heaven yes. My Home. That book is mind blowing. Um, Bluebird, Bluebird, which is the first in that, um, Highway 59 series. That won the, um, best novel Edgar yes. two years ago yeah. or a year and a half ago. And I would 
say the second one is even better. I think Ooh, it's a, it's good a endorsement. Totally, it, it's 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 a totally beautiful, powerful novel. Um, I I I was completely stunned by that book. Um, yeah, um, I've I've read some Michael Connelly lately, and I always enjoy him. Um, like and he's also been like very supportive of this book. So, oh, that's great. It's a real mensch. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steph, thank you so much for coming on here. Yeah, thank you so delight. much for hosting me. This yeah. has been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.